Right, so we're on episode number three, and today we're going to be talking about Rust. And as Durbanites, I think I need to clarify that that is not about the oxidation of pretty much anything metal that you ever buy, um, which still, yeah, that's a thing in Durban. Um, but yeah, so today um, we've got Simon, as usual. I mean, he's not exactly a guest on the show. He's more of a co-host. <laughs> but um, the interesting thing is that Simon has been working on production rust which i think is interesting i haven't personally spoken to anyone who's done that and um i i think it'll be a great a great thing to talk about in the show because rust is gaining a lot of traction in a lot of spaces certainly online um yeah. there's definitely a a sort of um i, I don't know how to put it but I mean, it may be louder online than it is in, in real life. Maybe maybe people aren't using it that much, uh, but they're talking about it a lot, certainly. Um, if you can yeah. hack it, uh, there's, there's always someone talking about Rust. Yeah, so that that's very true. Well, welcome, folks. Uh, nice, nice to join us today. So um, I am now a professional Rust developer, and by that I mean somebody has paid me for two months in a row to write production Rust. So I make no claims about expertise whatsoever, only that I now get money to do this. Um, so if there's experienced Rust devs listening to this conversation and I'm wrong about a whole bunch of things, let us know. I'm excited. I'm still learning. Um, but it's been a, a very exciting two months, and I think Dion's spot on about... But what he said, uh, Rust is definitely stealing a lot of mind share in the software development communities. Um, and I, now that I'm writing a little bit of Rust myself, I can I can see why. It's um, it's had a fairly profound impact on me as a software developer. Um, Divanovich, do you want to take us away and tell us what we'll be talking about specifically today, or should we just start our, our general rubbish? Uh, basically, I, I just want to. It sounds like you got a bit of noise in the background there. I don't know if we want to wait for it to pass by or. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm keen. Like so kids outside with drums. I, I think there's a march happening. Can I go and check a window quickly? I'll be yeah. back in a sec. Okay, I'm back. I, I'm left with more questions than I have answers to. There is a group of kids that go by and do this whole drumming act thing. It might very well be that. No, pop, don't go to sleep. You're supposed to. Be mine, mine would do that as well. <laughs> um, so there's there's an app called Caffeine that you can get in the pop shop. Okay, and that does what you think it is. It'll put something. So if you get the caffeine indicator, so once you've installed it, I uh, get the indicator, and it'll pop up in your notifications area. Okay. And then you just click it to, and then click activate. And then when there's steam coming off of the coffee um, uh, cup, that's beautiful. that means it's going to stay awake. I've got it on Mac ah. as well. Uh, but yeah. Welcome to Pop Tips. <laughs> <laughs> Next week. Do you know what the signal is that you have to send to your operating system to do this? No idea. Because VLC does this too. VLC will keep your, your shit from going to sleep because obviously you want that. Um, but it must be having some kind of conversation with the OS to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, there might be some low-level APIs or something like that as well. Um, it's just never able to find it. Given that this is Linux, there's probably a freaking lock file somewhere that you can just send. <laughs> <laughs> just write to this TTY. 
okay i do not hear any drumming so i can hear them very quietly in the background but they do seem to be much further away if you're, you're happy to continue i'm happy to continue yeah i'm i'm cool um so i mean my first question i mean obviously you there are some ndas that have been signed and all sorts of fun stuff so we're, we'll we'll talk about the things you're allowed to talk about. Um, let's talk about what kind of problems are you solving with Rust? Like, what was the reason that Rust was chosen over more traditional languages? So to free up this conversation a little bit, um, there actually haven't been any NDA signed. Um, we're pretty open about our architecture and what we're doing. So I do have a lot of freedom to talk. We also do a lot of contributions back to open source. So I don't think it's quite as tight as some of our, our traditional clients. So feel free to ask questions. If I do think I'm not allowed to say anything because of client privilege, I'll, I'll say nothing. But there's certainly no binding agreement. So this is really just down to um, behaving like an adult as a consultant. Um, to answer your question a little bit more directly, um, the problem that we're currently solving in Rust is, is actually... A, there's actually a few problems I think we're using Rust to tackle. Um, effectively, what the client that I'm working with does is um, they have an, uh, effectively a traditional microservice architecture. Each of the microservices is bound together with, um, with Kafka queues. Um, and we've got quite a high focus on high performance and uh, correctness. So Rust is immediately an excellent choice for us from those two perspectives. Um, the second big reason is um, our architect is a huge fan of functional programming and he wants some functional influence on in our life. So that also made Rust more attractive. He also tends to feel like Scala and Haskell are perhaps a little bit too highbrow um, for getting stuff done in the day-to-day -day world. Um, and Rust has quite a lot of compromises around actually trying to get things done, um, whereas Scala and Haskell kind of feel more like um, their intellectual pursuits. Um, so one of the big problems that we have with the reason we need a low level language is we do a lot of bindings into higher level languages. So we provide our clients with our clients of clients with a bunch of APIs and they work in a, a range of languages. So there's quite a lot of, uh, Python and Julia in those worlds since a lot of our clients, clients are uh, machine learning folks. So we have to be able to create bindings into those languages as well. And I know that's all rather vague, but does that answer some of your question? It raises some more. Excellent. I'm excited. Yeah, I think one of the questions I'd like to ask is, well, you're talking about bindings to other languages. Are those fairly mm. easy in Rust? Um, are, they, are you generating code or are you generating something that would be kind of like a C API and then letting your clients do it from there? Extremely, um, extremely similar to the C API. So um, you can expose effectively what appears to be a C API within Rust. Um, okay. And then, and then wrap that in other things. So that's a very common approach that Python devs will go through, which is to write stuff in C and wrap in Python. That's very easy to do in, in Python. Um, and that's effectively what we have done. But then we've extended it to provide APIs into the .NET world, into Julia, into... Um, Scala as well through Java, and therefore mm -hmm. Kotlin as well. Um, those are the ones that I know about. So I haven't written any of that code myself, but I have seen it. And it's an incredibly small amount of code to provide cross-language um, uh, cross, cross support. Um, you're probably looking at a few hundred lines of code. Um, 
which is impressive. Kind of knocked my socks off, to be honest. I mean, I mean, essentially, you, you're still doing kind of services backends for, um, you, you know, what would usually be written in things like Java or C Sharp, you know, that sort of application. Um, but, but you are writing in a systems language, a lower level language. Um, and unless you have real um, crazy throughput issues or something, or you're, you're Google, um, generally you don't really <laughs> use these, these types of low level languages um, for things. Um, so I find it interesting that you're using Rust in this space because it's essentially a much lower level language um, than is usually used in this type of space. I mean, even I think yeah. Go, I feel like Go is a little bit higher level um, than Rust is. Um, Rust is essentially, I mean, if you look at Microsoft, they're actually using it at the operating system at the kernel level. And so uh, I'm just curious, have you actually uh, in production used those lower language, uh, lower level languages before and, and how does Rust compare or, or maybe you haven't? So actually, I've never used those languages in production. I've never written any of those languages in production. I've had um, some quite serious wrestling matches with cross-compiling a C library. Um, but I wouldn't say that I've written a, a line of code and got paid for it in C or C++. I've written enough C to know that I'm not very good at writing C. So mm -hmm. one of my own personal projects was um, image processing, a very low-level image processing code where I was trying to focus on speed. Um, and I chose C to do that in. Um, I found that incredibly challenging. Um, and I've written enough C++ to have a very similar experiences to know that I'm not very good at it. So I've written one or two games in C++. Personal projects, again, not necessarily the right choice. I just wanted to explore the language a little bit. Um, so I can't speak as, a, as someone who's worked in production in those languages. But my experience with Rust has been um, shockingly pleasant, I think. When I initially heard that the client had chosen Rust to, to do this kind of work in, I thought, exactly the same as you. Sure, that doesn't really feel like the right choice. Why would you use Rust to do something that could be done in a high-level language? But my experience has been as easy or even easier than writing these things in C Sharp, I think. It's been, it's been a really nice experience. So one of the big reasons that the guys at, uh, that I work with say that they choose Rust is simply because it makes them happy. They feel they're able to be productive at a reasonable rate without blowing their own leg off. I mean, that's to me, the, that's the, the mind-blowing thing about this. And, and I think kind of makes your Rust experience fairly unique compared to, you know, other conversations that people are having about Rust because yeah. we're, we're not writing the system in a higher level language. Well, I think you guys do have some Scala going on and some Python going on. but Yeah, we do. Essentially, you're saying it's it's sitting in the same place that C Sharp would, and you're saying that it, as a developer experience, it's as good as one of those high level languages. Yet we're talking about a low level language here. So, essentially, this means that the language, in my mind, is is producing uh, benefits in a tier beyond what it was actually intended for. Um, which I mean happens. I think that happened with Node as well. And Node was yeah. designed specifically for a specific type of task, and it just it just spread like wildfire because it allowed people to essentially just run JavaScript anywhere. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he JavaScript made it in again. <laughs> <laughs> it's always going to make it in. We can talk about Dino.js later. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I thought we would have killed that topic with the last uh, <laughs> with the last podcast, but to me, to me, it's quite interesting. So it sounds like you're finding the kinds of things you would be doing in a high level language is like actually modeling your domain or, or speaking mm. about specific objects. Uh, it sounds like those that that is covered by the language in a way that traditionally wasn't in things like C and C++. Like, uh, I'm just thinking like in the concept of entities or entity models, is that something that that is easy to represent in Rust? So Rust doesn't have traditional classes, um, which is usually what you would reach for in C Sharp. It has structs. Um, and it has traits which you can apply to a, to a struct effectively, effectively through it um, in implementation. I haven't struggled at all with that. Um, taking, taking effectively JSON objects off a Kafka topic and ingesting them into my system and then emitting JSON on the other side hasn't really given me meaningful trouble in any way, shape, or form. Um, there's a, a lot of Rust libraries that will do a lot of the stuff for you. Um, using structs is incredibly incredibly easy to do. Um, and I'm noticing that there's a lot of stuff within the language that makes things that, that feel quite challenging in a language like C-sharp actually a lot easier. So every time I write C-sharp, it descends eventually into a huge ball of link. And um, <laughs> you, you open up a file and it's just like lines and lines and lines of link statements. And you're like, what does this even do? I don't understand. Um, so Rust will allow you to, to do the traditional MapReduce filter like you would in something like JavaScript. Um, and it'll allow you to do that very easily. But because Rust is also typed, um, you need to know what's coming out on the other side. So Rust has a lot of facilities to do that. So I often find myself comparing it to a language like C-sharp in terms of this is what I would usually do in C-sharp, but this would be hard in C-sharp. But this is as easy as it would be in Python or JavaScript. But I feel safe like I do in C-sharp. I often get the experience of if it compiles, it runs. If it compiles and my tests compile and my tests work, then I feel pretty safe. And I've yet to have a problem where um, where neither the compiler or a test have picked it up before it went out to somebody else. So I feel both easy to get things done and really, really looked after by my tooling at the same time. It's been really nice. And so it sounds to me like the project you're working on, it doesn't necessarily write um, stuff into a database, but rather puts them on a Kafka queue. Um, but in terms of receiving messages, uh, is it a standard HTTP API? Uh, the one that we're using is is not, actually. It, it literally just reads off Kafka topics and pushes onto other uh, Kafka topics. Um, I'm actually working on, on a number of projects at the same time. So I uh, completed a recent microservice, working on a second one while also doing some Python work on a back burner. Um, I, have had, um, I have had to use HTTP in Rust, and that's been super easy. There's some very nice libraries, um, one of which is called Hyper. If you're a Rust programmer and you're looking for HTTP, take a look at Hyper. It's very easy to use. Um, we are also actually doing some database writes at the moment. Uh, for for difficult to explain reasons in a podcast, um, and that's been mostly very nice, aside from the fact that there are some Microsoft implementations, <laughs> um, 
And the Rust community is pretty big about not bending over to closed source implementations. So there's a, a Microsoft Rust library, which I found quite challenging. But generally what I have noticed is anytime there's open source code, there's huge amounts of support around it in the Rust community. And it's quite easy to get stuff done from that perspective. So I'm guessing, uh, given that you're, you're saying Microsoft uh, libraries, so that sounds like you're writing into Microsoft SQL then. Aha, you are spot on, sir. I am yeah. indeed, and regretting it. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting uh, decision there. Um, yeah, not but... mine. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> it and we're all sad about it. <laughs> um. I'm I'm interested in in how that works. I mean, uh, in Java we have the persistence API, which which is fairly interesting. When you you write an application in Spring, it's quite easy to write to a database on a, on a pretty generic API that you can swap the database out underneath and with very few changes actually um, uh, completely change database technologies uh, because of that standardized APIs. There's something like that in Rust, or are you so doing So this is more... the great source of my sadness. Um, there's a very, very nice project called Diesel, which is an extensible ORM um, for Rust. And you should be able to achieve all of those things within Diesel. Uh, I know at least one person who uses Diesel in a pet project, and he says it's fantastic. Diesel does not support MS SQL because it's a closed source project, but it supports almost every other popular flavor of SQL out there. And this is really the reason why I'm so sad about this. <laughs> so I can't actually speak uh, personally for how good it is, but I hear it's great. Something that's standing out here is, is Rust definitely has these sort of interesting names for things. They sound like they're all themed around Mad Max in some way or another. You know, you've got Rust <laughs> and Diesel and... I don't know. Maybe it was from that, that id software game that was called Rust, interestingly <laughs> enough. Uh, I feel like they borrowed a, a bit of the aesthetic. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of, you know, working in, in production Rust, I think one of the things that, that really shows whether or not something is production ready is what kind of development environment um, you're using. I mean, with... Uh, Java, we've got things like um, IntelliJ, I, I think, is now the standard. Where I, I, yeah. Eclipse for old Java, I'm definitely, I'll definitely give it that. Um, but I think the modern way that that is accepted is is IntelliJ IDEs or for um, for production C sharp. Most people are still writing in. Um, Visual Studio, unless you're crazy like me and you're writing it in VS Code, um, which has its ups <laughs> and downs. And no. for some reason, for C Sharp works the worst in Windows. I don't know. Um, but <sighs> yeah, it's like, well, you're in Windows, you've got money anyway, might as well buy the IDE. <laughs> it hurts because it's true. But what, so what development environment are you using and, and how does it make you feel? <laughs> so this is one of the um, one of the big upshots in Rust for me, um, which is not a thing that I thought I would be saying, but I am nevertheless saying it. So I'm super lazy around my tools. I'm actually extremely opinionated around my tools, but also unprepared to get off my ass and make sure they work the way I want them to. So 
a tool set that's super easy to set up that works really well makes me really, really like language. Um, and that's the thing that I've actually found in Rust, which has been great. So I'm actually writing Rust in VS Code and using all the Rust tooling out the box. So Rust comes with a package manager called Cargo, which will help you install packages, which will um, check your packages. It also has a document generator built into it. There's a piece of tooling called Rust Format and Clippy, which will do all the linting for you. And then Cargo also builds your project, so it'll let you know if there's warnings. So my entire setup is run, uh, run VS Code, put a bunch of plugins to VS Code to bind those tools to it, and build from the command line using Cargo. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's bizarre to say. The other guys that I work with are using Sublime in a very, very similar pattern. I know there's, um, there's a JetBrains IDE, but I haven't touched it. I've found this such a nice experience. I haven't bothered. As far as I understand, it's got a language server. And, and after that, pretty much integrating it into any IDE is, is quite simple. Um, yeah. I, don't, I think JetBrains actually provides a paid for um, option. I think they're. Yeah, I'm sure they do. They always do. Um, runs Rust. Um, are, are you aware of anyone on your team that's using that? Or? No. Um, almost exclusively, we use VS Code. Um, and there's one or two of the folks that are using Sublime plugins. I mean, I have to be honest. I think this is more a testament to VS Code than anything else. Uh, the Rust tooling is first class, but I write everything in VS Code except C Sharp these days. I, it sounds like to me that they've made it easy to integrate with with um, existing IDEs. Um, and yeah. VS Code being, I think, what looks like the most popular IDE for everything. Um, yeah. yeah, it really does. Is, is, I mean, even I, I complained about the, the C-sharp compatibility in VS Code, but essentially I've been working in it the entire time now, um, doing .NET Core. Um, yeah. there's, there's some issues with .NET uh, framework and, and the older stuff, but, and, and even Java, um, I was able to transition out of using um, IntelliJ to using VS Code for, um, for Java because they actually implemented the e Eclipse standards. And yeah, essentially, it, it's easy for me. And I think, I think the reason people are now sticking to other IDEs is either they want to touch some sort of Microsoft-associated uh, IDE or because yeah. they're just used to IntelliJ now and they're used to the shortcuts and things. But the pluggability of, of VS Code has just started to make it a central sort of hub for all of your languages and, and you can yeah. really get pretty much everything done there. It's maybe not the best for all languages at the moment, but it, it certainly year on year becomes better and better. I think uh, writing .NET Core in VS Code about a year or two ago would have been nuts. Um, and and now maybe it's still nuts. I don't know, um, but but I'm- It makes me happy. It, it works for me. Yeah. Um, so, so it sounds like I mean, if if everything's integrated into the into the IDE fairly well, then yeah, VS Code is the future of writing all languages. It seems. <laughs> I think this is also a product of where we've gone around this as a discipline. So, if you were writing Java ten years ago, 
um, you would have been using um, Eclipse or if you're crazy like me, NetBeans. And those, those IDEs do a lot of things for you. They, they set up a lot of scripts. They hook into those scripts in strange ways. It's very difficult to move out of one of those once they've touched your project. And we've almost moved away from that kind of philosophy as a discipline. Now, when I pull a project off the internet, I expect to be able to pop it into standard tooling through a command line and get it to build in one step. Um, and I think that kind of philosophy is much easier to integrate with um, a thin text editor than anything else, which is really what VS Code was supposed to be. Now, now it's a fully-fledged IDE, but... Um, yeah. So really, we're just moving to this place where the tooling built-in is actually better to work with. Um, yeah. Uh, that that's that's for sure, and I think I think that's kind of what Rust as a system language provides more out of the box than, or should we say, out of the crate? Hey, uh, than something like C or C plus um, plus. I, mm. I think one of the big pains that I had with C and C plus plus was obtaining libraries and dependency dependency management and things like that, and. Yeah. Rust now goes and provides that same low-level ability um, that, that C, C++ and C have, uh, yeah. but it also has these modern tools that come from high-level languages uh, like package managers that just make life so much easier. And if I needed to write something low-level, I might actually be uh, skewed towards Rust because of that. Uh, I know there are now uh, tools for C and C++, but they're not necessarily de facto standards. Um, yeah. and, and when you don't prov provide a de facto standard, you when you run into stuff in the wild, especially in production, you end up having people do interesting things. I mean, I, I recently received um, some Java code that was not... <laughs> and it wasn't using... Um, maven or anything it was just like here's a here's a folder of jaws i was like okay uh, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you know that's definitely not the the best way to work um and and yeah when 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 a tool comes out with it uh well when a language comes out with uh, this is the de facto package manager i mean thank god no one is going hey Here's a Node.js project I wrote. Here's the Node modules folder. I mean, could you <laughs> that would be scary um, and also bandwidth destroying. Yeah, but it's it's so much better to have that um, out of the out of the gate um, for a for a low level language now. Yeah. One of the things that I was curious about is I think you have quite a bit of experience with different languages. You've, you've coded in Java, C Sharp, uh, Python. Um, to you, what, what makes Rust stand out as a language? What, is, what gives it um, the legs that... Because I've, I've been hearing you fanboy about Rust quite a bit. <laughs> Fanboying and, hard, yeah. And to hear a Python fanboy go, I oh. want to just stop writing this Python and go back to Rust is is jarring, uh, because I understand the love of Python. Um, yeah. I really do, and if it ran in browsers, it would be my main language. So, 
Uh, also, I, I think we asked for this last episode, and I will keep asking until it happens. Make a browser that runs Python. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, now that we got past this, um, and I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me Rust runs in browsers in a minute. But I, I am gonna tell you that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What makes it so exciting? What makes it nice from a developer's perspective? So I think this is quite a difficult question to answer, actually. Um, and I, I've thought about this a lot because I think it's an important thing as well. Um, historically, the, the only language that I think I've ever really fallen in love with has been Python. Um, and there's been a single clear reason why I've loved Python so much, and it's because it's so bloody easy to do anything anything that you want. The first project that I worked on in Enterprise was uh, a monstrosity that did a whole bunch of stuff with SQLite um, in Java. Um, and you're looking at classes and classes and classes just to get a database connection set up. And um, some of my first Enterprise experience in Python was like, OK, how do I connect to SQLite with Python? Import SQLite 3, SQLite3.connect. What, wait, what? There's no step 3? It, it's that easy? So that has been my experience in Python. That's, that's why I fall in love with the language, because you can do anything. Um, I don't have a single reason why I like Rust. There's a lot of small reasons, and they all come together to make uh, an experience that's nice holistically. So the first thing I think I have to mention, which doesn't actually get enough love, is actually just tooling. Cargo is a phenomenal piece of tooling. Um, to be able to manage all my dependencies, to be able to resolve collisions within my dependencies, to have a build system baked into that, to have something I can build documentation directly off my code and comments is, is amazing. Um, to have tests be first class in the language itself is, is amazing. My tests live alongside my code. Um, and that is how your inverted commas is supposed to do your tests in Rust. To have a language where I feel like I can achieve anything is, is fantastic. I can compile my code to WASM and stick it in a browser. Told you I was going to tell you that. I can also potentially target an operating system if I want to. And sure, you can do those same things in JavaScript. Um, but writing a, uh, an operating system in JavaScript sounds like an extremely daunting task. Um, so I feel like I've got a lot of freedom. Um, the traditional things around Rust are uh, safety. So I have complete control over how I'm managing my memory within my language. It's completely, um, completely optional how I want to do that. In something like C-sharp, you're bound to a garbage collector. So you can do something stupid, stick a million items in an array, your garbage collector kicks in, and suddenly nothing's running for half a second uh, because that's being collected. Um, you don't have control over that. In something like C or C++, it's on you to figure that out. You want to leave your memory hanging, and you lose it, and you leak um, an array with a million items. That's your problem, buddy. Rust doesn't have that problem. So Rust has a completely novel approach to managing memory, which I think is incredibly clever, um, and I appreciate that. So it's all of those on top of a language that feels very modern. So I have access to a whole bunch of modern uh, language constructs, like uh, MapReduce filters easy to do. I have very powerful match statements. Um, I have first-class functions. I have closures that make sense. The language itself feels comfortable to write. So it's not a single thing, like I said. It's a collection of all these things that stick together to make the entire experience of writing Rust feel like a nice experience. I have the power of Python and the safety of C-sharp. I mean, as you said that, um, you, you know, in the beginning, you said 
something about um, how pretty much stuff is simple to do in Python, where you connecting to a database is fairly simple, whereas in Java, your experience of doing it is, um, you, you know, it's, it's quite a verbose uh, yeah. set of actions that you have to take before it it actually materializes into a database connection. And then I thought to myself, well, I mean, in modern Java, you have things like Spring, uh, the Spring framework, where connecting to a database is super easy. So then I thought, well, maybe this has more to do with the community being unified around a concept as opposed to splitting in, off into directions. So um, I, I think Python, it has that, that concept, the Zen of Python, which is built into mm. the language that everyone adopts and everyone goes in the same direction. Yeah. Um, and in thinking about it as an outsider that looks in every so often and um, hasn't rarely delved into the Rust space, what I, what it does seem like, and hearing from you as well, it sounds like there is also a community-defined way of doing things, um, a natural way that everyone gravitates towards. So yeah. do you think maybe that um, contributes? I think that's a huge aspect of it. Um, so it's built into your tooling and your compiler will warn you if you're doing things weird. Um, I think that's a big aspect of it. But also remember that Yast, Yast, Rust is a very young language. So we've got a chance to start again from a fresh slate and uh, not take through a whole bunch of craft that we had in other languages. And if you pick up any modern language, you see a lot of really, really nice things coming through. I don't think this is just Rust. I think this is also... A commitment from the guys who build Rust to just making a language that's nice to work with. Yeah, I I just feel like um, we sort of with Java had it had a like two point reset when they started going very quickly and and adding things. But from yeah. the get go, from the beginning with Python, there's always been one way to do things. There's been a prescriptive way, and I think Rust being a prescriptive language. It looks to me like it's it's causing that same thing to happen where if there's a simple way to do things, it's going to become the community standard. Um, yeah. Whether or not, um, whether or not that, that is a good thing or a bad thing in the long run um, has to be seen because the next question I want to move on to is what the community is like. Um, specifically around... I'm not sure what the framework was, but I heard that that someone got very uh, Actics. Someone got upset active. in the Actic project. Mm. Yes. Uh, so I think it's time to talk about the community. <clears throat> so this one's a complicated one. This is fair. Um, I think the community is is one of the best and worst things about Rust together. Um, I think there's a lot of snobby Rust programs out there. Um, you've heard me ranting about how great this language is over the last hour, and you also know that I'm, I'm generally pretty trying to much walk the middle ground. Um, mm. So if I'm ranting about this language, if you take someone who usually rants about how great a language is and you put the, them on the internet, um, you end up with a lot of, more frankly, obnoxious people. There's a reason why people joke about the Rust Evangelism strike force. It's, it's a real thing. 
you get a thing where someone writes something in C and uh, a Rust station crops up and says, why don't you rewrite this in Rust? Um, and I think that's a, that's a real negative. That being said, there's a lot of very smart people who seem to be very committed to producing the best language they can out there. There, there seem to be a lot of people who care a lot about Rust. So I think it's very mixed. I think the dark side of caring about Rust is, is the snobbiness. But um, I think the language has moved incredibly fast. So I, I don't really know where to stand on this one, to be honest. I think it's very mixed. Speaking of the dark side, um, and, and I do think I titled this episode The Strike Force Unleashed. So this is a perfect <laughs> segue. Um, do you see any technical downsides um, to using Rust? Um, it depends on what you mean by technical downsides. Um... So essentially, um, what I would have thought, especially for a young language, uh, is library compatibility. Um, you, you know, if you need to call into some obscure database um, mm. or do something that for a lot of languages is a very established thing that's been around for longer than Rust has existed. Um, yeah. There's been libraries for, for certain things. Um, and, and also the, the amount, this, the settling down aspect as well. I mean, if I think about uh, something like C sharp where there was there was a period in C sharp where it was very difficult if you were writing um, web APIs or something in C sharp to actually make a choice because mm. the Microsoft's official implementation was so bad that people went and wrote Nancy. Um, and now, if you haven't kept up to date with that and still use Nancy, it's kind of strange because now Microsoft's implementation is better. So it's <laughs> sort of stability coming in but first it's chaos because everyone's writing their own http framework or something and then people yeah. come in and and sort the thing out um so another worry of mine would be well we can use this database library now uh i think i think the one like you referred to diesel um how do we know diesel is going to be around in in, in five years, am I going to have to swap this out? Or does it not matter in Rust because of some crazy language construct that just allows you to, to swap things out? Um, you know, is there anything like that, that that are kind of gotchas that you would not use Rust for, um, for a particular reason or a particular type of project? So as much as I love Rust and as wide as I would now use the language in a lot of cases, I think there are... There are quite a lot of drawbacks that you do need to know about before you probably jump headfirst into. Um, the first and foremost one is Rust is a complicated language. It's, it's a young language, but it's already quite difficult to write in a lot of ways. So Rust is quite uncompromising in how it chooses to interface with the computer. Um, we talk about zero-cost abstraction, which means that we will do our best to provide you with rational constructs to interface with the computer in a rational way. But if we can't give you a rational way of doing the thing that you're trying to do, you can't do that thing. Um, so a common thing that folks fight about uh, coming into Rust is the borrow checker. So the borrow checker won't let you do stupid things with your memory. It won't let you effectively do what would be a use after free error 
and C or C++. Um, that can be very, very surprising to people coming into Rust. So you can go through entire weeks where you're just going, why won't this code compile? Why? Oh, that's why. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'm dumb. Well, now why won't this code compile? Okay, no, that makes sense. Sure. Okay, bugger. I could have done that in Python, but now does Python make sense? Um, so that can be quite jarring. Um, Rust doesn't compromise around that stuff. The second big thing I think that does need to be mentioned is Rust is young. Um, and while you can call more or less freely into C from Rust, there's a whole plethora of libraries out there that you just don't have access to. Um, I recently had to do a cron implementation, and the de facto standard in Java is Quart Scheduler, which is amazing. Um, probably way too complicated, but it's a story for a different day. There's one uh, de facto library in Rust, and it's very young. It doesn't support all the things we wanted it to do. So I found myself writing a whole bunch of code that I wouldn't have had to do in another language. Um, that, was, that was unpleasant, and that's a direct artifact of, of Rust's age. Um, yeah, as, and that's, that's what I would have thought, um, because essentially, I mean, I mean it, it's fine for certain libraries if, that you can do yourself. Um, yeah. but, but in some cases, especially if you're working on, on a higher level, um, implementing yeah. a full library can be quite treacherous and something you yeah. don't actually want to do. Yeah. Uh, so, and so that, that was one? definitely on the cusp of that. Yeah. A complicated piece of code that I ended up having to write. Yeah, and if you have to, and you have, if you have to roll that yourself, um, is essentially a lot of people that are building uh, things like APIs and things like that may not necessarily have the time or resources to to actually go and implement those uh, yeah. particular parts. Although you mentioned quartz for a bit, and and I thought that was quite interesting. Um, something I noticed about quartz. Um, at least on the C sharp front, because I think I think it's also called course in C sharp. Uh, yeah, course the... Yeah, um, it had not been maintained for two or three years, and we made a decision not to use it um, because it was not maintained. Okay, interesting. Um, a while back, and then about a few months ago, they had completely redone the website. And they started, like, got a new logo and development started ramping up again. So I think that's an interesting thing to note about libraries. Just because there's a lull in development for two years doesn't necessarily mean a thing goes away. Yeah. Um, you know, things make comebacks. Um, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, I, I would say for me, that would be the biggest worry is is that I'm going to reach for a library and and the competing languages essentially especially in the space of those higher level use cases such as um, writing web APIs you know yeah. literally like you, you're competing with the old school guys like Java and and C Sharp that have decades worth of libraries um yeah. and then you the newer kind of things like 
either Python, you know, like a Flask application or a, a Django application, which also Python has a massive set of libraries. And if you think about it, every C library as well um, counts yeah. and has yeah. probably already been ported. Then you have NPM, which uh, as you and I always make jokes about NPM, like whenever we think of a funny word, we'll go look it up and nine times out of 10, <laughs> Yeah. It exists on NPM, you, you yeah. know, any random word you can think of. Um, it's a great any game. You can think of. I mean, the, the is even and is odd packages are stand out there. You can literally get a package to check if the number is odd or even. Yes. Um, I guess the real question is, is the left pad package odd or even? <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's that's a real thing. So um, you can call fairly freely from Rust into C. In fact, uh, the Rust development makes that a lot um, insanely easy and almost free to do so. Um, but Rust is a young language. Um, so there's going to be a whole bunch of things that are not missing. I think the Rust devs have got this really nice place where you can do most of the middle tier stuff. So you want to do a web API? Cool, you can do that. You want to integrate with the database? Cool, you can do that. You want image processing code? Cool, you can do that. You want something that'll turn a cron into a human readable format? Sorry, Matt, write your own or call into JavaScript. Um, the other side to that is also there's still conversations happening within the language around how things are done. So the asynchronous implementation in Rust used to be through a library called Tokyo. Um, there's now support within the standard library to do that. But now there's a whole bunch of Tokyo code and there's a whole bunch of async standard code. And it's difficult mm -hmm. to know how we're going to bridge that. There are subtle differences between those two implementations that you need to understand before you just wholesale move from one to the other. Um, so yeah, these are the ails of a, a new and young language. Th these are definitely problems. And you shouldn't just pick up Rust because it's, it's cool and popular. Um, th those are risks. Another thing you mentioned, um, oh, I, I think you mentioned, but I've also, it's, it's something that worried me is that a library that you use may be on a nightly build, whereas uh, you might be writing in a more stable, I hope, uh, in, in, in stable. Um, yes, we are. <laughs> uh, do you think that's something that would, would hold you back from making a decision about using Rust in production? When I join this project, I believe it would be a problem. Um, it has been less of a problem for the projects that I've worked on, but yes, that is still absolutely a concern for me. Um, for production code, I would only use the stable uh, implementation of Rust. I wouldn't touch nightly stuff. And there are libraries that I've wanted that are nightly that I cannot use for that reason. Um, I've, I've found ways around it, but yeah, it's a concern. I would have I would have expected the the library implement to at least provide an LTS version of their libraries, but I could also see that maybe some things are easier to implement in, big, given that Nightly probably has features that may have been added later to Rust because it's like, woo, we made that part hard in the language and <laughs> it. so the plan with Rust is. 
is that um, stable should always catch up to nightly at some point. So if you have a library that's using a nightly implementation, at some point you should just be able to pull out stable and it works. Um, and I have had that experience. That doesn't require anything for the developer of the library to do insofar as I'm aware. Um, but again, this is up to developers to make rational decisions and we're all people. So there's always going to be cases where that doesn't work out well. I haven't had as much problem as I thought I was going to have with this, but I am aware that people have had problems with this. Again, young language, be aware. Right. So I had, I think, one more um, sort of technical question, and then and then we'll talk about uh, community to to wrap up. But um, on the technical front, I know that you work mainly in micros microservices and, and those backend systems, but mm. uh, a little birdie told me that you've been playing with WebAssembly and JavaScript <laughs> and replacing JavaScript with Rust. So I, I want to know um, where do you think that is? As someone who, who has played in the JavaScript space a bit, uh, and has done front-end work. Um, you know, do you think that WebAssembly is ready for prime time, or do you think these crazy projects um, like Microsoft's Blazor, I know that's not Rust, but it's, I, I, as far as I understand, WebAssembly is WebAssembly. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think it's, it's ready for prime time? I think these things are still extremely experimental. My, uh, of my personal experience of, of doing a, a personal project in Rust, um, I would not reach for production-ready WASM yet, to be honest. Um, if you are interested, there's an amazing-looking library called U, in which you can write all of your front-end in Rust itself and compile it to a WASM bundle and kick it into a browser. Um, but I, I don't think we're there yet, to be honest. And I don't actually know if we're ever going to be there. I don't think WASM is ever going to replace uh, JavaScript. Um, it's a different thing. It'll be an add-on to JavaScript when you want to do high-performance, high-computation code. I don't think JS is going anywhere. I don't think Rust, I mean, I don't think React is going anywhere either. These things are here to stay. Is WASM really high-performance, though? I mean, I've, I've not gone into that space at all, but my understanding is it's just a... a a subset of JavaScript that's, that's really high performance. Um, but essentially, and I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the Firefox browser's engine is written in Rust. So it, Some of super, it sounds super weird to essentially compile Rust down to a subset of JavaScript so that it can be run by Rust again. Like, I, <laughs> maybe I'm mistaken. <laughs> when you put it like that, it does sound bizarre. Um, I'm not an expert on this stuff, so I can, I can only say what I know or what I think I know. Um, right now, WASM is a subset of JavaScript that comes with some things that a standard JavaScript interpreter doesn't have to do, which can lead to performance improvements. Long-term plan is to get a proper um, assembly implementation in there. I don't think we're there yet, but I haven't been watching. Um, and that comes with, with all the teeth uh, that low-level code has. So at some point, you're going to need a garbage collector if you want to compile C-sharp into WASM. 
I just think that I don't know if the traditional browsers are going to be the place where people are going to start running um, other programming languages other than JavaScript. I feel like yeah. the um, where that will come from is possibly scrapping the JavaScript engine altogether. And maybe if LLVM comes some sort of strange way and, and pops itself in a browser instead, instead of having a JavaScript engine in a browser um, and some sort of crazy cross compilation, like download an app kind of thing in your browser. Um, I, I think that will probably be the, the point where people shift to writing websites, but there wouldn't be websites anymore. It, it'd be like an app browser kind of new technology, new thing. And then I also wonder what, what problem does it actually solve? Um, yeah. That's other really... than people not liking JavaScript, which is another one because, I mean, I guess I could get my Python in a browser. It'd be great, but... You're still going to have I... all the problems that you had in JavaScript. You're just going to be able to deal with them in Python. And to be honest, that was my experience writing Rust and compiling to Wasm. A browser is still a browser. It's still hard to deal with. But now I can free a chunk of memory, and now I can blow my own leg off in JavaScript with a memory bug. Um, I just think that the business value uh, of actually like replacing JavaScript in a browser, th there is none. And yeah. it's, it's, almost, it's almost like a developer fan club thing where it's, yeah. it's, and, and it's older devs. You're, you're getting younger and younger devs that are coming out of their tertiary education or not, or you're just coming into the industry, they're learning JavaScript first. Mm. And, and there's a lot more of a maturity coming through in some places as well, where you see people are, are valuing well the, the product that they create more than the process that, um, that created it. Because we're getting people in the industry now that um that are different and don't necessarily not every not every software engineer is someone who started coding when they were seven and a lot of people get into it because they actually want to just build a good product and i think that's a great yeah. way to actually build products um and so with that mindset you think well what is the actual value of coding in non-JavaScript on in a browser, other than just I want to, which is great. I mean, that's a great hacker attitude, but it certainly doesn't feel like something worth spend spending millions and millions of dollars into researching. Um, yeah, I think you're spot on there. Um, I don't think underestimate the value of it makes you happy. Um, that's effectively why we use Rust in, in my client base, and it's it's been nice. It's been nice to be happy working with a language that's nice and easy. But I don't think that our standard model is going anywhere. Browsers aren't slow because of JavaScript. Yeah. Um, but I mean, for your particular purpose, you're working on the back end. I feel like those are different kinds of problems and, yeah. and they need to be solved in those ways. But in browser, it's a particular type of problem. And JavaScript has been forged in order to actually solve that problem and do nothing else. So, <laughs> Except that it does do everything else as well. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it, yeah. it ends up doing everything else because it's so um uh, I, I mean the reason that uh ryan doll chose to use javascript for node was because it didn't have an io implementation um yeah. it was an incomplete language and so it allowed us some space in, in order for you to add these these types of things and because really it's it's supposed to rope together the stuff that's already existing in the browser and and so i'm in my mind it's the best tool for that specific job um and, and i don't and in the back end we've got a whole bunch of different tools that are really good at that job um some go into different spaces than others essentially but on the front end you're manipulating the document essentially uh that that's what it needs to do and and javascript is really good at that and maybe rust is a really amazing language and systems stuff well clearly i, I think it's it's already shown that it is uh, with the amount of people that are adopting it for lower level system stuff you yeah. are using it um for services and it's it certainly sounds like it's doing well there um but but maybe it it isn't great at manipulating documents um which is which is where, where javascript lives yeah i mean to to manipulate documents with rust you need to go via wasm and wasm is quite raw and low level um yeah. i don't think you should be dipping into wasm unless for some crazy reason you need to do a lot of computations in a browser um there are times when you want to do that, but I've never had one in my career. I, I mean, maybe that's just because you haven't gotten into mining bitcoins off of people. So. <laughs> yes, that, that is one of the, the, the reasons why you would reach for WASM. And there is a Bitcoin miner written in Rust, and you can compile it to WASM. Um, doesn't mean you should. Uh, yeah, look forward to that Facebook extension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, if, if you're listening to this talk and you're a JavaScript programmer and you're worried about WASM, don't be. You, Last thing I want to do. Sorry. So no. um lastly I wanted to touch on the Rust Evangelism Strike Force again. I mean, we are mm. tied to the Strike Force unleashed, so I think we do need to extend that chat a bit. What do you think it is that makes people so passionate about Rust? Um, why is it that once the nail scratches, people get tetanus? That's lovely. I like it a lot. Um, I think that's quite a complicated question to unpack. And I, I think there's a lot of reasons for it, depending on where you come from. So I'm an enterprise dev, effectively. And I've liked Rust because I have the power to do things easily, like I do in Python but I have a compiler that's double-checking me like I do in Java and C-sharp, and that's been a very nice experience. I think for a lot of um, low-level folks, it's the not having to worry so much about your memory anymore. So we do have a notorious problem with this as software developers. Managing memory is really hard, it turns out. Um, it's quite easy in a small program, but as your program gets larger and larger and larger, the chance of memory bugs increases. And memory bugs can go anywhere from this program stops executing to uh, now you've got hackers um, getting SSH access into your Labrador or whatever it may be. So memory bugs are, are a serious problem. Um, 
and and Rust locks you out of doing a lot of really really stupid things. So there's some clear improvements over traditional languages like C and C++. Please don't understand me. I'm not saying misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Rust is necessarily better than these things because those languages aren't going anywhere. Um, but I don't think without languages like Rust and D, the C and C++ devs would have taken as much notice of these memory problems as they would have. So I think there's a lot of push around the innovation that Rust has brought into the industry. And I think there's a lot of chatter around it because of that. Um, and I think that's important as well. It's, it's a bit jarring when the Rust evangelism strike force arrives. Um, mm. But we do also need to have conversations around, hey, guys, you're writing the security code in C, and uh, now my toast is behaving funny. Can we, can we maybe stop doing that, please? Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely see the results of memory leaks throughout. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole issue behind having to turn something off and on again essentially comes down to memory management issues. So, yeah, uh, yeah if, if you tackle that, you, you can tackle a lot. I'm, I'm actually starting to think that maybe uh, with my little hobbyist microcontrollers, I should maybe start looking into making them a little rusty. <laughs> uh, I would love to hear how that experience goes. Yeah. Listen, it's not gonna it's not gonna fix these problems. You can still get memory bugs and rust. You can mm. do stupid things. They are significantly harder to do. Um and for a whole class of memory bugs, you can't do it unless you specifically turn off the checks. And even when you do turn off the checks, you can't turn off all of them. So um for the folks saying that you can't get memory bugs and rust, it's it's not true. It's much, much harder to do, that's all. So this is not going to solve the problem, but it might go a long way to getting some kind of thing into place where we can start to address it. Cool. Um, yeah, to wrap up, I think um, I'd just like to ask, where would you send listeners if they were interested in getting up and going with Rust and maybe trying the language out? So again, Rust, Rust provides. Um, there's a book called The Rust Book. Um, which is provided by the developers of Rust, and that will walk you through the entire language, step by step, everything you need to know. Um, you can literally go to docs.rustlang.org, um, and that's a great start. And that's the official guide, um, the official as, guide. as far as I understand. I, I think I started working through it. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, I'll maybe, maybe I haven't quite been bitten by the bug yet. I haven't joined the strike force. Um, That's absolutely fine. We we need opposite voices as well. Uh, I I think it's more of a lack of time than anything. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'll get really stuck yeah. into it, and I'll be using Arch Linux again um, in the future. <laughs> Here, you know. My other piece of advice is download a Rust compiler, start writing some stuff, and just listen to your compiler. I've mostly learned Rust by um, just dealing with the borrow checker. <laughs>